Good morning, and welcome to All Saints. It's a real pleasure to worship, not just worship with you, but to look at the Word of God together this morning. This past week, as Jim mentioned at the beginning of the service, we commemorated the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation. That was an awfully long time ago, so there are only a few of us here today who still remember it. The Protestant Reformation was a movement of church leaders across all of Europe. Many pastors and teachers were concerned that the, that the church had drifted away from its most important things. And whenever we drift away from our most important things, very quickly we go into dangerous places. Here's a very silly, I admit it's a silly example, but here's a very silly example of that. Imagine if all of Boise's ambulance drivers were talking one day and they said, you know, we're always out driving around the city, coming and going. You know what would make a lot of sense? We should deliver pizzas on the side. I mean, we're going out and about anyway. We could drop off a few pizzas as we go, right? I mean, you can see that would be actually very dangerous because they would be getting off mission. And then it would get even worse when the pizza drivers heard about this and they decided two could play at that game. (laughs) Whenever we drift from our most important things, it's dangerous. That's true both of us as individuals and as institutions. When we make secondary things primary, or if we find ultimate meaning in things that have limited value, then we will find ourselves at very least disappointed, and we will probably end up damaging ourselves and other people around us. So in the centuries leading up to the Reformation, that happened to most of the Christian church. A slow drift had taken place, in which the church's values and priorities in its early years had been replaced by new, lesser values and priorities. So at the time of the Reformation, many church leaders were calling the church to make first things first again. Really, you could almost boil the Reformation down to that. Make first things first again. So how did the church respond? Did they accept the Reformers' call to return to their roots? Well, yes and no. Some parts of the church changed while others refused reform. And that contributed greatly to division in the church, uh, which has lasted to this day, by the way. Some statistics say that there are now over 30,000 different denominations of Christians in the world. This past week, I read a lot of wildly varying opinions of the Reformation on different blogs and Twitter. Some say that the Reformation is the greatest revival in the history of the church since Pentecost and that it rescued the gospel from being totally eclipsed. Scroll down a little, and you'll find others saying that the Reformation was ultimately a failure, and was one of the worst things that ever happened to the church. They say that largely because of the divisions that it generated. So which is it? Was the Reformation good or bad? Or maybe a better question is, does it even matter? I mean, who cares? Maybe you're asking that question today. The the Reformation is the same distance into the past, 500 years ago, as the year 2517 is in the future. I mean, very few of the things that we do today, if any at all, will be still relevant 500 years from now. So how can the actions of a bunch of pastors and theologians from that long ago still be meaningful today? Maybe that's your question. Our passage today, which is printed in your bulletin, if you want to turn your Bibles to... 2 Timothy 3. This passage was written in A.D. 61. That's 1,456 years before the Reformation. And yet, the main themes of this passage 
are uh, vitally important both to the time of the Reformation and to today. This passage comes from a letter by the Apostle Paul to a young pastor named Timothy, who Paul had mentored. He wrote, uh, the Apostle Paul wrote this while imprisoned in Rome, and many scholars think that this was maybe the last thing that he wrote before he was executed by the Romans. And so listen uh, as we read from 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1-5 through 5 and 10-17. to 17. But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than God, having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. Avoid such people. You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, at Lystra, which persecutions I endured, yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and impostors will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Now, this passage presents us with two kinds of people. And the Bible does that very often. When it does, we're meant to measure ourselves and ask, which of these two people am I most like? So listen again to how the, think, think again, remember again how the first person was described. Just a, just a smattering. Lovers of self, lovers of money, arrogant, disobedient, uh, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, brutal, and a bunch of other things. I'm sure that there are plenty of people in every age who would fit that description, but I feel like there are plenty of people in our age who fit that description. Do you know what this reminds me of the most, where I see this the most? Most of our conversations about politics sound like this. Conversations on all sides of it, left, right, center, libertarian, doesn't matter. Politics has become our national sport, our national pastime. It's one of our main cultural idols. And we are sounding more and more like this first man when we talk about politics. But it's not only politics, it's lots of other areas of life too. You could say that this is our default setting. This is how we come wired. Left to ourselves, what are we? We're lovers of self, lovers of money, lovers of, of pleasure, ungrateful, unholy, and the like. So these things do not bring about what is good. These, these things are not lovely. And Timothy is told to avoid such people. What's the other kind of person in 2 Timothy chapter 3? Just glance again at... Uh, at chapter, uh, verses 10 through 15. 
You, you have followed after my teaching, conduct, life, faith, patience, love, steadfastness. All the things that he describes there. But the main feature of this second kind of person is actually a little bit surprising. Because when, when we think about the good guys, when we think about the strong and heroic people, we always view them as people who have something special within themselves. As a good, that we view them as having a goodness that emanates from inside and drives them and their actions and what they do outside. But notice carefully, the Apostle Paul here is describing someone who has received what is good from others. One who has followed the example of others, he writes, even through persecution. And whatever good this person has comes from the outside. And he says it's a goodness that can be lost. He exhorts Timothy to continue in what he has learned all his life, even from childhood. If he does not continue, if instead he turns to what naturally comes from within, he will become like the first kind of person rather than the second. So our passage today contrasts those two kinds of people. And as I said a minute ago, when the Bible does that, we are meant to measure ourselves against the two and ask, which one am I most like? I mean, the Apostle Paul obviously portrays, wants to portray the first kind of person as wrong. I mean, he says, avoid such people, right? And he praises the second kind of person, and we're supposed to be like this instead. That's obviously his perspective on it. But I think it's, I think it's really surprising that the person who is commended is leaning on something that they have received from others. That person values tradition. Here the Apostle Paul is asking Timothy to cling to a tradition that he received first as a child from his mother and his grandmother, we read elsewhere, and then later from the Apostle Paul and others. Now I think, I could be wrong here, I think our culture is actually very strongly anti-tradition. Like, I don't think we tend to think of ourselves that way. I think we think we're very traditional. Baseball, apple pie, the pledge and the flag, these are all things we love. The old days are the good days, and we love our history, our roots. That's how we understand ourselves, our families, and our society and our nation. But in reality, we're being selective. We're picking and choosing the parts of the past that suit us because In reality, every place, every family, every time is actually something of a mixed bag. There's plenty to admire, but there's just as much to regret. And most often, the parts that we choose to remember are the the ones that support our decision to do what we wanted to do in the first place. Because that's really the heart of the issue. What supports me in doing what what I feel like I need to do? We don't like tradition because tradition implies submission. If there's something that we are supposed to continue that came before us, then we're not free to decide everything for ourselves. We're expected to live up to something, to carry the mantle, and to preserve somebody else's values. But in our hearts, we don't really want to do that. We would rather decide on and preserve our own values. So the ability to decide on our own values and live them out, that promises freedom to us. We love the idea of freedom. We tell, we tell each other, above all, be yourself. Figure out who you are and live that out wherever that takes you. And in 21st century America, we think that's the only path to a good life. But ask anyone who has tried to live that way. Ask anyone who has really put a lot of time, energy, and effort in trying to live a life of absolute freedom. 
Absolute freedom, absolute openness. It's like, it's like putting a boa constrictor around your neck. Maybe at first it feels kind of cool and exotic. You're like, oh, wow, that looks cool. But then as it slowly tightens, we find ourselves, we find ourselves fighting for breath. Absolute freedom is absolutely disorienting. And it is suffocating. And ultimately it is deadly. And it crushes our souls. I have seen, I have personally witnessed as absolute freedom has withered and broken many people. And I bet you have too. But however deadly absolute freedom is, we as a society think that tradition is, is, always, is even worse than absolute freedom. We're uncomfortable with the idea of tradition. And all of us are, all of us are uncomfortable with it to some degree because we're far more a product of our culture than we realize we are. So that's where we start out. That's how we're wired at the beginning. Just ask yourself this question. Where do I go for wisdom? Where's the first place I go? What, what wisdom trumps all other wisdoms in my life? Am I like the first kind of person in this passage? Do I look for wisdom within? Or am I the second kind of person? Am I willing to accept an outside wisdom? Will I let that outside wisdom retrain me and create in me new thoughts and new loves? Now, it's obvious which one of those the Apostle Paul thinks you should prefer. But really, the question before you today is, which, what do you think? Deep down in your heart, on a, on a real day-to-day basis, which one of those do you trust the most? And all of that, all of that brings us to really the heart of the passage. Of the most famous, some of the most famous verses in the Bible are the last two that we read. Look again at... Verses 16 and 17. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. That the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Those two verses are, are part of the, they're, they're some of the first things first passages of scripture. They should be right there at the top of who we are and what we do. This is one that's worth printing off and taping to your bathroom mirror if you're if you're that kind of person, so you can be reminded of it every day. Or if you're the tattoo type, this is one that maybe you should consider. I'd like to focus on four things from these two verses that are very much worth our attention. And because it's Reformation Sunday, I'll try to illustrate each one with an example from the Reformation. Sound good? Here we go. One thing we should notice is that it says, All Scripture is profitable. And this is one of the main issues that the Reformation addressed 500 years ago. In the preceding centuries, the church had slowly come to view other ideas, other perspectives, as more profitable than Scripture. Yes, that even happens in in churches. Churches do that, and Christians do that. Before the Reformation, a lot of human ideas had become equal to or even more important than the Word of God, even in the church. The men, of the men and women of the Reformation made the doctrine of sola scriptura central to everything they did. Sola scriptura means scripture alone is the supreme authority in all spiritual matters. It doesn't share the stage with anything else. They valued scripture so much that they wanted everyone to have access to it. And no one exemplified that more than John Wycliffe. Wycliffe started the Reformation in England. He was a priest, and he began reading the Bible in Latin. And as he was reading through the Bible, he he realized that the teachings of the church uh, were against what the Scripture said. And so Wycliffe recognized that the best way to correct that error was with the Scriptures themselves. 
And so he began the first ever English translation of the Bible. For that work, he was declared a heretic by the church and placed under house arrest. He died imprisoned, but his translation had already begun to spread. It would impact every Christian speaking, English-speaking Christian since then because most of his text was used in the King James Bible, which has been the basis for all English translations of the Bible for the last several centuries. So all of us are impacted by the work of, of Wycliffe. John Wycliffe believed that all of Scripture is profitable, and he wanted everyone to have and to treasure God's Word above everything else. That was a controversial idea in his day, and it isn't any less controversial today. I mean, if you asked your friends, your coworkers, your family to make a list of the greatest influences in their lives, the places where they turn first for wisdom, where do you think God's Word would land on that list? Where would it land on our list? Do you believe that all Scripture is profitable? Do we, do we really rely on the wisdom of the God of the universe given to us in his word? Is that something we can honestly say that we rely upon? Or in our day-to-day practice, in our actual real-life practice, do we really prefer the wisdom of humans? One pastor said on Twitter just yesterday, If we resist the Bible... Our only remaining basis for truth is our feelings and or popular opinion. And that's a dangerous place to be. That's the the quote from him. So the first thing, all scripture is profitable. The second thing, what is scripture profitable for? Scripture is profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness, it says. Which implies what? It implies that we need to be taught, reproved, corrected, and trained in righteousness. That that's a need that we have. I mean, that's not one of the things that we think of when we wake up in the morning. We don't pop our head off the pillow and say, I wonder how I will be reproved and corrected today. I mean, instead, we often resist being taught and trained because what does that imply? It implies implies that we're inadequate in some way. And for some of us, that hits pretty close to some nerves. When we, get, when we get taught and trained and reproved and corrected. So if this text is saying we need teaching, reproof, correction, and training. I think deep down we really all know that. That's why we're touchy about it, right? We know that we're not exactly a finished product, right? And we know that we need to be reshaped in various ways. But here's the catch, according to this passage. Here's the catch. Not just any kind of reshaping will do passage is very specific. It says, we need teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness. Not just any teaching, training, reproof, and correction will do. So here's, here's an example of what I mean by that distinction. John Calvin was born in France. And his father was a lawyer, and he wanted his son to become a lawyer too. And so he sent him to the University of Paris at the, at the age of 12. Man, college students in those days, where, where he was a very diligent student. A typical day of study at the University of Paris at that time began at 4 a.m. and ended at 8 or 9 p.m. The students followed a strict daily schedule. They had mass, three classes, plenty of reading and writing, and they had a one-hour break in the afternoon. So from 4 to 8 or 9 p.m., they worked straight through. They had a one-hour break in the afternoon. Calvin worked hard, earned his Bachelor of Arts degree, at the University of Paris at age 16, and then continued his studies at Orléans and Bourges. 
When Calvin was just beginning to make a name for himself at age 21 in professional circles, he had a sudden conversion of faith. And he began to live the, the Reformation teaching of sola deo gloria, which means that everything that we've been given, everything that we do with what we've been given, should be for the glory of God alone. Here's the distinction. Calvin was very educated, far more educated than I am or any of us. He had received plenty of teaching, reproof, correction, and training over the years. But he, he had done it all for himself, for his own reputation, for his own career success. It was only after his conversion that he received teaching, reproof, correction, training in righteousness, which is a completely different thing altogether. So I guess the question I want to finish this one with is, how do we use all the teaching, reproof, correction, and training that we have been given over many years? Do we use it for righteousness? True righteousness, which glorifies God above all else? Or do we use all of our teaching, reproof, correction, and training to build our own kingdoms instead of His? That's the second thing we should see from this passage. Scripture is profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness. Here's the third thing. Look at what he says. He says, that we may be complete. I mean, being complete. I mean, what a beautiful way to put that. And I don't mean in a cheesy Jerry Maguire, you complete me sort of way. I mean, but don't you wish you were complete? I mean, don't you wish that word described you? I'm complete. I am whole. I am lacking nothing. All oh, the pieces of the puzzle are in the right place and the picture is beautiful. Don't you wish that described you? So a guy named Jan Hus lived in Bohemia, which is now a part of the Czech Republic. He became a priest for the money, actually, because he was born into a poor family and he saw priesthood as a way of, of like a path out of poverty. Later on, after he'd become a priest, he found John Wycliffe's writings all the way across Europe. Uh, they'd been translated and, and communicated across Europe. And reading Wycliffe's writings, he came to faith in Christ. Now, this is a priest coming to faith in Christ. It happens, you know. But he began preaching the good news of sola gratia. Salvation is by grace alone, a free gift of God, and not by anything that we have done. And he was, pre- he was preaching that, it, that salvation is received sola fide, by faith alone. He soon became the most popular preacher in all of Bohemia. People were literally traveling across the country to go hear this guy. The church wasn't very happy about that because what he was teaching conflicted with what they were teaching at the time. And so Hus was condemned and sentenced to death. But as they came and got him out of his prison cell to execute him, do you know what he said? This is a quote. He said, I am ready to die today. I mean, what an amazing thing to say. I am ready to die. I mean, what is, what is Hus saying? He's saying, I'm, I'm complete. Hus's life was complete in a way that most of us could only dream about. Because, now, I mean, very few of us would say, I am ready to die today. So the message of salvation that Hus proclaimed is the very thing that we crave. It's the very thing that makes us complete. Would you like to be what you were created to be? Our culture says, look within and create yourself. 
But here in 2 Timothy, God says that we should instead learn from him what he has created us to be. So are you relying on the grace of God alone, received through faith alone to be complete? Or are you still trying to to be complete through your own brains, brawn, and boasting? That's the third thing, that we may be complete. The fourth, the last thing is, right there at the very end, the last five words that we have there on the page in verse 17, equipped for every good work. If we actually listen to what God says about us, and if that is what defines us, then we will be equipped for every good work. For our example on this point, we look not at one of the reformers, but let's look at one of the people who opposed the reformers uh, back in the, in the time of the Reformation. A man named Johann Tetzel was a very famous preacher and one of the chief, fundra- chief fundraisers for the Church of Rome at the time of the Reformation. In one of his most famous sermons, he taught that a person earns seven years in purgatory for every sin that they commit. And now he's, he's talking about even if you believe in Jesus, you still have to be punished for every single sin you commit with seven years in purgatory. So let's do some simple math on that. <laughs> if you were really very exceptionally good and you managed to only commit one sin a day, which, I mean, we'll all admit, that's, that's pretty good, right? That adds up to 2,555 years in purgatory earned in just one year. If you lived to be 70 and you somehow managed to maintain this super le- superhuman level of goodness, only committing one sin a day, then you would accrue in 70 years, you would accrue 178,850 years in purgatory. I don't care who you are. That's a lot of purgatory. And for a pretty good life, too. I mean, only one sin a day? And that's exactly why Tetzel was a really good fundraiser, because he also taught that donations would reduce the amount of time that you would suffer for your sins. And, of course, people responded by donating everything they could, because that's a lot of purgatory. And remember, he was talking about Christians. He's talking about people for whom Christ had died. I mean, that's astounding, mostly because the Bible doesn't say anything about seven years in purgatory. The Bible doesn't say anything about purgatory at all. That's why it's easy to see why the the Reformation's proclamation of the gospel was such good news. That Jesus Christ, the Son of God, bore our sins and suffered their penalty. That God grants salvation by His grace alone. That forgiveness is really forgiveness. And not just forgiveness and then keep trying, keep working at it. I mean, the Reformation teaching of solus Christus, that salvation comes through Christ alone, is very good news. Because without it, we've been left completely exposed, on our own, fending for ourselves, trying to donate our way into heaven. That doesn't work. But God has intervened. And he has saved us from ourselves. Hallelujah. That's exactly what we need. That's the very thing that we need. That's the first thing. That should be our first thing. And as I said at the beginning, when we drift away from the most important things, it's always dangerous. It's immediately dangerous when we drift away 
When we make secondary things primary things. When we try to find ultimate meaning in things that have limited value. When we try to create purpose and meaning from within. Then we will inevitably find ourselves disappointed at best. And we will end up damaging ourselves and hurting the people around us. Who cares about the Reformation 500 years later? We do. Because we have so many of the same problems and questions and needs today that they did then. And just like them back in that day, we need to always return again and again to our first things. Thanks be to God that he has provided provided them for us through Christ our Savior and through his word. Amen.